And I appreciate uh, you, Drake Gilmore, for your music offering. Uh, it was outstanding. Um, and we're just so blessed this morning to have so much going on and to see the fruit of the Lord in, in each other's lives. And now we're going to avail ourselves to God's Word and our message this morning. <clears throat> and we're going to conclude our Covenant Class series. It's the last Sunday of this year. Excuse me. It's the last Sunday of this year, and so it's our last Covenant Class series. And um, I embarked on this series to, if you recall, just to, to pull us back together, uh, to defragment us. And I think COVID had that effect where we couldn't be with each other. We had to distance from each other. And, and uh, you know, the body of Christ is about unity. It's about togetherness. It's about relationship. But what enables us to be like-minded is thinking what Christ teaches us to think. It's, it's immersing ourselves in the doctrines of Holy Scripture. That's what we can all wholeheartedly agree on and come together and be united and have that in common. So I hope that it served its purpose and also the purpose of uh, just reminding us of why we're here as a church. I mean, there's lots of churches out there. Why would you go to New Covenant Fellowship? How did we begin? Pastor Kirk talked a little bit about our beginnings um, in his testimony this morning. What are we trying to accomplish here? And that, that's what I hope that I answered those questions in this covenant class. But we have one more to do, and it's part two. And this section of the class is on church polity. How is a, ch- how is a church to be governed? Do we just draw straws? Do we, do we draw models from other institutions and how they're governed? Or does God have an actual plan and system in place that he wants his church to operate by. And we believe we find those that system in the scriptures. So this morning in our church polity as we continue, um, we're going to look at elders and deacons. In part one, we looked at God's uh, plan or mode of governing the church as a plurality of leadership, a plurality of elders or overseers. Where do we come up with that? When you read the New Testament... Everywhere a church was planted, everywhere the apostles went, you find them saying in this place, Thessalonica or Corinth, appoint elders and overseers. He says to the church, appoint elders and overseers. And so by God's command, that's what we do, and that's how churches are formed and churches are governed. That's how churches grow and churches know. So it's God's idea, not man's idea, and we want to be obedient to Scripture. So God places certain individuals, he calls certain individuals to serve in this capacity, and the church confirms it. We looked at that last time as well. So this morning I want to look at elders and deacons, mostly going to pick on the elders uh, this morning, but uh, the deacons... They have very similar uh, descriptions and qualifications, so I will talk a little bit about that. But I'm going to look at the description, the qualification, and then lastly, the aspiration of being an elder or an overseer or a deacon or a leader of some kind. But before I talk about the qualifications, I want to look at the description. What do the scriptures say that an overseer does? What is the task of an overseer? 
because Scripture actually says a lot more about the character that they're supposed to have than the tasks that they're supposed to fulfill. But we do find some qualifications or some boundaries here. And that is, simply put, God puts leaders in place to lead and feed the church. You can, you can simplify it with that. So what is our task? To lead and feed the flock. So we govern the flock by leading it, by, by ruling it, by shepherding it. And obviously we shepherd and we lead to what? We lead the flock to Christ. We lead the flock to the triune God. So it's that kind of rulership or leadership. And so what we, the way we conduct our services, Sunday school, everything that we do at New Covenant is with the aim of leading us to Christ, to helping us know him more and to enable us to grow in Christ as he would have us to do. So we're, we serve as God's guide in that sense. Uh, our task is to look ahead to see what we can do to lead and to grow and to feed, but also to look behind and to see uh, areas that we can improve in, in this sense. And ultimately, our goal in leading and feeding is to prepare the flock, not just for this life, but ultimately to prepare you for the life to come. Because that's where we want to, that's where we want to go, right? We want to be resurrected into the heavens. So lead you into a deeper relationship, uh, further in and higher up. So that's kind of a big picture of what overseers and shepherds do. I mean, you, it, the New Testament only really gives us a big picture. That's all we have to go on. There's a few examples that we have of how the elders, the apostles did this. And I'll share those with you, but that's a big picture. Mostly, here's, a, here's an example that we find in Acts 6, and I'll refer to this scripture quite frequently in this morning's message. Acts 6, 2 through 4. The twelve, of course, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So this instruction, I always, I, I'm always amazed at how doctrine comes through real-life experiences. Like we looked at 2 Corinthians, and Paul addressed issues based on real-life experiences, based on successes and failures. And here they're faced with a real-life experience of, having to, uh, of ministering to a group of people who does what? They want to be practical, practical about this. Uh, everybody could get pulled in different directions. But what Paul or the apostles uh, reveal is that there are certain duties and responsibilities that people in the body of Christ have in order to be the church. It works in a certain way. Some people do this. Some people do that. And rather than get pulled, in, pulled away from each other's responsibilities, he says that the best thing to do here because we're responsible to preach and we're responsible to pray, to lead and to feed. And so rather than be pulled away from that where the church would suffer, we'll just appoint others who can serve in the area of need. 
So it's, it's practical, but it's also divine revelation to us. And this is also how deacons were born, so to speak. The, the word deacon basically means minister or servant. Ministry, the word ministry means to serve. So any, in any ministry that you're in, you are serving somebody or one another. So these men that they looked upon, they looked at the group of disciples, we need to find good men here. We need to find men of good repute, men that are capable to serve in this way. And that's the, so the body of Christ came together, exercised their, their authority as a unit, and said, well, here's one, and here's one, and here's one. Based on their lifestyle, they were able to identify that, and that was God, God's provision for um, this need they have. So it's a plurality of elders, and we're given... Each person in the church has different responsibilities and different duties. It's interesting to me, if you look at the denominations today, that um, some denominations <clears throat> read the same scriptures but come out with different applications. You have the Presbyterians who are uh, solely um, have a plurality of eldership, and they also have deacons in their church. That's, that's what we have as well. Uh, the Baptists, come, the traditional Baptists, come out looking at it a little differently, and they would say that an elder is only a pastor. And so in most of their churches, you have a pastor, no elders, but lots of deacons. So it just is different how it comes out there. For some reason, it's like they ignore 1 Timothy 3. But um, there is a lot of flexibility in church government, especially in the New Testament. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But I want to point out that in the Old Testament, when it talked about leaders and priests, you couldn't get any more specific in what your task and job was. I mean, you were told when to show up. You were told exactly what to do, how to do it, even in some cases what to wear while you're doing it, what to say while you're doing it. I mean, it is just spelled out task by task, line by line. They had very strict parameters in the Old Testament in how they were to serve. You look at the New Testament, not so much. It's different. You don't have... You, you do not have a line-by-line -line duty of how to serve. It's, again, it's this big picture. Shepherd, love, lead, feed. The biggest emphasis in the New Testament is on the qualifications. I mean, we're, we're going to read um, about the qualifications. Did I, did I skip that part? No. We're going to read about the qualifications. And um, that's more descriptive than the, actually what you're supposed to do as an elder or a deacon. So we have some parameters here. And I think that if I had, if I had to just uh, guess at why this is the case, in the Old Testament you had one people, you had one nation, you had a pre priesthood, you had a theocracy, you had one culture. Uh, it wasn't just the priests that were told what to do and not to do, but the whole culture of Israel was like that. In the New Testament, as we know, when Christ, come, the, when Christ came, the big goal is people of every tribe, every nation. It's not confined to one nation. It was, that was never the plan. So the, Abraham brought us. He was a blessing to many nations, the one to many. And so the idea now is the gospel goes out everywhere, and it's not this 
this one specific cultural practice. The gospel transcend, transcends culture in that sense. And you could get bound down by trying to fit worldly cultures into scripture and the gospel. But rather we take the gospel and the gospel culture to other cultures. And so there's flexibility here. If you think about bringing the gospel to other cultures and, and how they are structured and who is responsible for what and what's the authority structure in this. Uh, each culture is to obey the scripture, but there's flexibility in um, how, what it turns out to look or how it's cooked when it's in the end there. So there's not like a specific dress code. Uh, sometimes you listen to, to preachers and you think there's a certain tone of voice that you're supposed to preach in. There are certain um, practices that groups of preachers hold to and then you can walk away thinking, well, that's what it means to preach the word or that's what it means to teach the word. But there's a lot of flexibility in all of this. But we can still maintain order. We can still maintain unity because whatever God tells us, that's what we agree on. So we, we, we keep the main thing the main thing. And we be careful about the other things. We have grace about the other things. It's more important to be devoted to Christ, not devoted to whatever cultural practice we have. And I also say this. Now we learn, we, when we look at worldview, our beliefs or what we believe determines what we value. And what we value influences our behavior. And our behavior shapes culture. And so when, when you have a group of people in any culture that value God, value scripture, when they believe in God, that's what they're going to value and it's going to change their lives. It's going to change their priorities. And so the gospel culture is going to trickle in to whatever other culture. Now in America, there's different cultures than gospel culture. But as the church, our church culture, gospel culture, of keeping Christ first, seek God in his righteousness, as Pastor Kirk said, it's, if that's what we believe, then we're going to value different things and it's going to come out in the way we live. It's going to influence our behavior and it's going to shape our culture. Uh, I thought it was interesting in this morning's Sunday school teaching, and Corky's going through Luke 1, the Christmas story, where when people encountered God, their reaction was to utter praise. Zachariah did it. Mary did it. Elizabeth did it when they have encounters with God. So it's like there's, it was a beautiful culture of a people that were so intimate and close to God and knew him so well that when something happened in their, in their lives, they just automatically gave God be praised. God be praised for this. They saw that it was from the hand of God. That's a beautiful picture of a culture of a people. We want to emulate that as well. So our Christian influence, what scripture says, will influence our lives and hopefully trickle into the culture we are to be a witness for Christ and transform our culture. Churches do eldership different ways. There are churches that have 70 elders or more. And we have just a few. 
We've always had just, just a few. Good men is all it takes. Elders lead. Elders govern. Well, they evaluate. They gauge the health of the church. They offer direction. They strive to create a community of obedient disciples. Teach them to observe. That means obey everything that I have commanded you and instructed you. It's not just about knowing. It's about obeying. So that's the rulership, that's the govern. Secondly, they, they feed, they teach. Titus 1.9 says that the elder must hold firm to the sure word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to confute those who contradict it. So the elders, in a sense, are the stewards of God's truth. An elder has to know what God's word says so he can know what's truth and what's true and what's not true and when necessary encourage truth and refute things that are not true that might creep into the church and that certainly happens. Timothy 5:17 says let the elders who rule well let the elders who rule well for or govern or oversee or manage well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there we have the description of, well, what do elders do? They preach and they teach. Uh, they pray. They administer the word of God and are to be honored for that. So you, you see that there are elders that God calls, he raises up, he equips. They have, some have stronger gifts. You might have a stronger gift in leadership than you do in preaching and, and shepherding and, and so forth. But it's all there. It's all a bundle. And if you're going to be an elder, you have to know the word of God. You don't necessarily have to be an excellent preacher. You might not even necessarily need to be in the pulpit very often. But... If somebody in the congregation, there's a need, or you see somebody in error, you have to know the Word of God, what it says, to be able to correct, to be able to train. If, if we're not at that label, level, then we're not quite ready for it. So elders need to be able to, able to teach in that sense. Lead and feed. Well, quickly, well, what do deacons do? So this is just, I'm not going to take the time to read all of Acts 6, but that's where deacons were born, if, if you will. Um, deacons are to care for the physical needs of the church body. We see that in Acts 6.1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint rose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in a daily serving of food. Who steps in to solve this problem? The deacons. Deacons are appointed for this. It's an administration. It's to bring order. It's to keep things running smoothly and godly and to promote unity. That was one of the purposes. And when we keep things running orderly and obediently to Scripture, then it keeps unity and peace. So they, deacons meet physical needs. Deacons also promote unity in the body. And third, deacons support the ministry of the word. So, uh, so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, this is Acts 6, and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So then the deacons 
support um, those who minister in the word and prayer. That's a very, very important position. So one man can't do everything. So God gives us responsibilities. He equips us. A covenant class quote. Deacons and elders complement one another in their service to God. They work towards the same goal of serving and building the body to the glory of God. They look for ways to encourage each other's gifts and promote each other's spiritual maturity. That we are well served. We happen now to have deacons who are qualified to be elders but are not serving in that way. But we utilize those gifts that God has in them. Very, very mature Christians here. So that is the description of what an elder does. That's, that's how you are being served by your deacons and your elders. That's what we think about. That's what we talk about. These are the kind of decisions that we make to lead this church. We pour ourselves in God's word and stick as close to that as we possibly can. But our passage is filled with qualifications. The Lord is very strict and definitive on who he wants in these kind of positions. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy, which means it's, it's well known by then. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You've got to be able to do just about everything well and do it well. These are tight. They can be broken down into four uh, parts, the elder's behavior, the elder's family, the elder's experience, and the elder's overall reputation. Now, I'm going to go through these, and I know we, we don't have time to, to go into depth, but I'm going to touch on each one of these kind of a, as quickly as I possibly can. But it's just too important just to gloss over. But let's tackle these, and then, and then I'm going to close with aspiration to be an elder. So first, above reproach. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And a lot of these are words that you don't hear in our culture anymore. So it means they have sinful behaviors under control, no longer rough around the edges. Uh, don't fly off with th- things so that people can point a finger at them. Not, they're not perfect, but refined by the Spirit of Christ and the Word enough to have conquered the overt and very, or very public sinful behaviors. Second, husband of one wife. What does that mean? He's a one-woman man. He's not a polygamist. He's not on sister wives. Uh, The main idea is that he is faithful to his wife. The church has struggled to understand this over the the years. What does it mean to be uh, the man of one wife? Some landed and say elders have to be married. You can't be an elder if you're not married. Uh, Apostle Paul wasn't married, so... 
that I don't think that's not right. Um, we talk, some say, well, you can't serve as an elder or a pastor if you've ever been divorced. But Paul says in Corinthians that there are exceptions to this. If you, if, um, some say you can only have one wife, period. Well, if, you, if, you, if your spouse dies, you are perfectly free to enter into the uh, covenant with another spouse. And there's also exceptions for the unbelieving spouse in instances of divorce. So the main idea here is that you have one wife at a time, I guess you'd say, but that you are devoted. You're a good husband. You're devoted to your wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. So Paul's just thinking of every godly thing he can, and he's just packing it in to this, to this passage here. Now, these are tough qualifications, but they're doable by the Spirit of God. Why so hard? Why so many qualifications? So if you think about it, this is a position of power. And it can be terribly abused. We see it in our culture. And it has happened in the history of the church. You put people in positions of power and it can be terribly, terribly abused. They may have good leadership qualities. But God says... They need to have godly character. That's the first thing that even gets you off the starting place. Godly character. So many leaders will squabble over power, how to lead, and so forth. You can't have that. That ruins the leadership in the church. That, that can hurt the unity in the church. There needs to be humility. There needs to be godliness. There needs to be character. Sober-minded means to be temperate. To be in control of your appetites. So Matt Chandler says that it, it means that they, they can have a glass of wine, but not be the one that's dancing on the top of the dinner table at the end of the night. Not gluttons. They have to have self-control over their appetites. Uh, self-control, to have a keen awareness of oneself, to know your strengths, to know your weaknesses, to know what to pursue, to know what to avoid. And know what you can and cannot handle. There aren't, they aren't given to impulse. To be respectable has to do with order, modesty, to, uh, to wear modest apparel, to live modestly, to live humbly and orderly. And hospitable of all things as a qualification. You see what's important to God in his economy. Uh, one that would open their homes to friends and enemies, to friends and to strangers, to the lost and the downtrodden. Use their home as a, an opportunity, as a platform for ministry in the love of Christ to those inside and outside the kingdom when possible. Able to teach, we already covered that. So these are the things that elders are to have, but then the Apostle Paul includes the knots. Do these things, not these. Not a drunkard. No mystery there, right? Can't drink too much. Can't be a reckless habit. Can't give in to the devil's brew, as they would say in the Western movies I grew up watching. Uh, not violent. So not this, but this. <clears throat> not violent, but gentle. This is certainly appropriate in our day, where we are seeing more and more a culture of violence, culture of anger, 
culture of, of tribes pitted against each other, uh, a, a culture of people who like to fight and slander one another. So it's not just enough to know the truth. There has to be even a way that we convey it, and it's a gentle way. It's a considerate way. It's a kind way. It's not abusive or pugnacious or violent or screaming threats, <clears throat> not quarrelsome. And that goes with the former two, has to do with uh, not seeking out conflict, not being one that wants to pick a fight. You know people that want to pick a fight in almost any instance they can. They, they love to argue. Uh, eldership is not for you. Not fit for God's leaders. Not a lover of money. God speaks into the wallet and the bank accounts. Uh, <clears throat> And then in verse 4, we start the family section. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So you see it's every area of life. In in essence, you have a person that needs to be seeking God in every area of their life, needs to be dying to self as much as possible and giving in to the Lord, following God, loving him. Uh, enjoying obedience more than rebellion. Matt Chandler says, if you're not ministering to your house, stay away from the bride of Christ. If you can't lead your own bride, leave mine alone. Interesting there. So in God's economy, uh, the men that he would have to lead and feed his church will be the men that also lead and feed their families. This has to be a, pri- a priority, not a neglect. So much so that if there is a ne- neglect for our own families and shepherding our own families, then we're not fit to shepherd the church. The family is a great training ground. It's an opportunity to, to hone your skills, to take on responsibility, to rise to this occasion. And there are good parents and there are not so good parents. There are good leaders. There are not so good leaders. But this is where it starts in God's economy, in the family, first priority. This reminded me when I was uh, asked to consider um, the pastorate. As you know, Pastor Kirk stood up here for 20 years and led and fed you as your pastor. And when he said that he felt that God was, uh, was finished with this part of his ministry... It was time to move on to other things. The church was left with a decision, well, who is going to pastor us now? And my name came up, and through a different process, I was asked to consider the pastorate. And I was serving as an elder at that time. So when I was asked this question, who is the first person I shared this with and consulted? The very first person was my wife. And then I had to get, uh, I had to, this is, a, this is the uh, husband of one wife, the person that I need to care for and shepherd. If I change careers, it absolutely affects her. I need to get a pulse on what her thoughts are in that. We're one flesh. Uh, I would not do it if she was not in agreement. And if I really felt like it was God's will, I would trust God to change her heart. Another thing, the second thing that I did, realizing that it would affect my family, is that I set my, uh, my young kids, my children down, 
And Josiah was 10 at the time, if you can believe it. Jesse was 8, and Abby was 5. That's how old they were when I was asked about this position. So I just sat them down and as, as, as in childlike terms as I possibly could speak, explain what was being asked of me, explain what was happening in the church, explain to them that if I was to take this position, that it would, uh, it would limit some of my time. There would be times, I said, that I wouldn't be home to put you to bed. I will be at church meetings. There will be times in the day where I won't be available to play ball or maybe go to a ball game because I will have these kind of church responsibilities. And they sat there and listened to the best they could with their little minds. And then I asked them, what do you think? And they said, Daddy, I think you should do it. So they took personal ownership over my career. And do you know that... um, Uh, elders not given to impulse, so I gotta and be self-controlled. Things just creep up on you. That they never once complained. They never once complained about me not being there. <clears throat> so that means a lot to me. Because you have uh, you got you have kids, pastors' kids kicking church doors. They hate the church because the church stole their daddy from them. Because the priority wasn't in the family. And so I just am so grateful to God's grace and how He shepherded our family through all of this. And that was twenty years ago. Elder must manage his household. He goes on to say, not a recent convert in verse. Six. He's got to be mature. There has to be a level of maturity. Again, it doesn't say, well, you've got to put age limits on it. It doesn't say that. It has to do with how long have you known Christ and how mature you are. And it tells us why. It's a pitfall to put new converts in big places. They can't handle it. It's a lot of pressure. We see this in our celebrities and our athletes of the day. You see people who come across popularity, they cannot handle it, and they crumble and they crush, and they destroy themselves in some cases. God just nips that in the bud. So it's about the experience and the maturity. And lastly, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So in other words, this person is to be godly enough to where it's not just noticeable in the church, but it's also noticeable to outsiders in the community, his neighbors, people that he rubs shoulders with, wherever he shops or goes or drives, just how he does life. People need to know, or it needs to be evident that this is a man of God. It's not like you're just holy in the church and then you walk out into the world and you get to be worldly has to be well thought of. It's important to God. It's important to the church there. Now, my last point, and I'll close with this, is aspiration. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And this is one of those places in Scripture where God reveals his heart and mind. 
And God sees this task as someone wanting to lead God's people, someone wanting to feed God's people at any level. The, the, the desire, whether he attains to it or not, he might, he might be an elder one day or a pastor or a deacon or a teacher or a leader of some kind, administrator, committee leader. But the aspiration to want to invest in God's people, to see that they grow, to see that they're well-fed, to see that they have what they need, to see that they're pointed to Christ. In God's mind, he says, that's noble, that's good, that's praiseworthy. I like it. I like it. So he's assuring believers that it's not a terrible thing to want to be a leader in the church. It's not a terrible thing to want to watch people mature and to be put in a position to be able to see that or bring it about. It's actually a good thing for the glory of God. Don't apologize for those kind of aspirations. It's noble, he says. You just have to want to do it for the right reasons here. So, you know, we think about this. This kind of aspiration is not going to get much attention from the world. Now, the world's not going to give me any kind of reward. He's not going to give any of these guys or anybody that served in the past any kind of reward for being an elder or deacon. It's not noble in their eyes. But when you get in this place, when you get in God's house in the church, it's good, it's noble, it's praiseworthy. So my question if it's to you is, if it's noble in God's sight, is it noble in your sight? If it's a big deal in God's mind that young people, people all along the, the planes and the levels of maturity, if it's important to him that there's this aspiration to be invested in God's people, is that important to you? Because that's how God grows the leaders for the next generation. There'll be a day when we are not here to feed and lead. So that means that God needs to be, and I'm trusting God, to stir in hearts. And if God is stirring in young hearts and minds and putting a desire there, an aspiration, that means it's our responsibility to act on it. So that means that what's happening in a healthy church is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to people about things and prompting just as he did us. Now we are here in this position, and all these guys will tell you, We don't do this for the money. We don't do this because we don't have anything else to do. God's Spirit called us to this. And we can't do anything else when the Spirit of God prompts you in that way. Dwight will tell you the same thing and Pastor Kirk too. It's only when that calling is released that they step away. It's an accountability and commitment to God first. So it's important to God. So in a healthy church, we have the Spirit of God moving and and working in people to grow this love for his people, the one another's. And then it is our responsibility to be obedient to it. And the way that we do that is we just step out. We, we do firsts. We do the things that we're scared to do for the glory of God. We, we say our first public prayer. We give our first public praise. We, 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 join, our first, we join the missions committee. We try things out. Where do I fit? How can I serve? So that we work, we mature to whatever level God wants us to mature and serve in whatever level God wants us to serve. It's this formation. You know, there's a military formation 
uh, the, fa- the, the phalanx, they called it, or even rank and line in the Civil War, where you have lines of people. And when the people in front get shot and fall, the ones behind them, they step up and do their job. So when today's leaders are gone, who is behind us? Where's the rank? We're trusting the Holy Spirit to do that. But I am encouraging you and challenging you, specifically the men, but also the women, because there is a place for everybody to serve in God's church, to consider what do you live for, what do you love the most, and what are your aspirations? Is the church in there anywhere? Is the body of Christ in there anywhere? Because God says this is a good thing and a noble thing. To take this message, aspire to grow, aspire to mature, aspire to do brave things for the first time. There's lots of opportunities. This, we have a nursery back there, and you're not allowed into Sunday school class until you can reach a le- certain level of maturity. You, got, you can't think you've got to be out of potty trained or something like that. We've got a great system. Sarah Gilmore does a great job back there, and those that volunteer, it's a system. So there's a system of maturity. Share an insight for the first time. Teach a Sunday school class for the first time. Volunteer for that. Provide offering music. Blessings to Drake Gilmore. That took took bravery. It was for the glory of God. That's the kind of instrument that's unforgiving. One little squeak. Everybody knows it. Right? Bravery. Appreciate that. Serve in the nursery for the first time. Step up and do something. Make an announcement. These things. There's so many opportunities. This church is the nursery for growing in Christ and serving the body of Christ. So you know God's heart for his church. Consider desiring a noble task. May God bless the preaching of the word. And now we have an opportunity to, to praise his holy name, to exalt him. And then we will join in the Lord's Supper.